How you doing, man? Well, I'm hot and sweaty, man. It's been uh, the heat wave here, and I just pedaled my bike up the hill, but I'm fit. I'm ready to go, man. Fantastic. <laughs> That's right. We are recording this in uh, June, and uh, this will be months months ago. There was, well, as you listen to this, months ago was that huge northwest heat wave bubble where yeah. temperatures reached Portland, what, 113, 114 degrees? Crazy. My daughter lives down there, you know, our social media manager, and uh, Karina, and uh, she survived it, man. But, geez, that's what's cool about this podcast is, you know, we time travel, and this would go back in time, and then yeah. we time shift when these things are broadcast, and then they're rebroadcast yeah. on radio, so yeah. it's all a little time capsule. But here we are now, Dave. Anyways, Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm uh, excited uh, because months ago I took my trip to Alaska, which is really in about a week from now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Ray, we're, we're gonna, we had so much fun, didn't we? Wow, we did. Our, we're going to. Well, yeah. We're going to, but we I haven't been there yet. Yeah. Or I'm going to go our there. Our fossil adventures, they were magnificent. And what about you? Any, any paleo news happening? There's been a lot of paleo news, man. A lot of paleo news. There's my uh, our good friend, uh, Pat Druckenmiller, and his colleague, Greg Erickson, ah, published right. a paper. And we're going to have to get Greg on here because we wanted to talk about polar dinosaurs. They published a paper showing that dinosaurs in the Cretaceous of the far north of Alaska, where I've been on the Colville River, there's like a nursery. The clear evidence that not only were their dinosaurs up there, but they were overwintering and they're having little babies and they're wintering, you know, I mean, spending three, four months in darkness. So we got to talk about that at some point. Well, Ken, I've got a question. Yeah, they found all these uh, baby bones and stuff, but how do they know that the dinosaurs didn't migrate in the summer, have their babies and then migrate south? Well, I think we should ask a guest about that because uh, okay. there's so probably you don't know. evidence. You don't know. That's, yeah, the, the simple answer is I've learned I can't BS my way out of these things. It was in the main uh, news feed uh, worldwide, and I think it was surprising that they said dinosaurs pretty much were at such a high, cold, chilly latitude. What was the ecology like back then? Was it warm and tropical or was it? Freezing cold. It was warm and tropical because I've been there. Right. There were large trees. Uh, there were actually large trees at the far north. But whether or not, you know, if you've got three months of total darkness and you're tilted away. It's going to get chilly. It's going to get chilly. So, yeah. you know, but I didn't, I never drew my polar dinosaurs in the snow, man, because Kirk Johnson said, no, no, no. There were no polar ice caps then. So. Right, right. All right. Make a note, we're going to interview Greg Erickson, who uh, co-wrote that paper with Pat Druckenmiller. Yep. All right, I'm excited today, boy. Have we got... Now, I don't well, know if we're even going to go paleo today, because... I don't know if we are or not, but actually, when I wrote uh, our, our guest, our esteemed guest, our insanely cool guest... Should we who is? The identity? Right. <laughs> Why do you do this every time? <laughs> I just imagine that we have, like, some curtain, and there they are, and the audience is, like... But I guess it's all over, you know, we, we say who's in the episode. It's Brian Scary, National Geographic photographer. I had the honor and privilege to hang out with him one afternoon. We had drinks. Oh, uh, really? And uh, he just had a whole series of films that have been on uh, Disney Plus channel, The uh, Secrets of the Whales. Anyways, I looked at his Instagram uh, feed, and his most popular one, at least recently, is a baby beluga. It'll baby. Right. Who doesn't love a baby beluga? 
And it's a cute yeah. little beluga just swimming right toward the camera, just newly born, almost fresh out of the womb. For those of you who don't know, beluga is an Arctic white whale. It's a white whale. It's the only true white whale. It's actually. just a true white whale, but actually the babies are brown. So Yeah, they come out brown. Yeah. So But this Disney Channel the Whales documentary, uh, it is phenomenal footage. He's underwater filming them and, and oh my goodness. Three years it took, and actually it's on the cover of, you know, the National Geographic magazine, the uh Wait, wait, what are you holding there? Well, this is National Geographic magazine from April. I'm tired of talking about us. <laughs> let's talk about Brian Scary. Let's get and, him on the uh, phone. Let's get him on the phone. Call him. Hey, David, meet Brian Scary, internationally known National Geographic photographer, filmmaker, and storyteller. Brian, it's so cool to see you again. We were just talking a little bit before the show. <laughs> yeah. I ran into you on the streets of Ketchikan, saw you in Seattle. But meet David, my buddy on this, this podcast. Yeah, yeah. nice to meet well, you. Hey, Ray, and hi, David. Great to meet you as well. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I can't believe the volume, the volumes of your work and, and photography and the amount of hours you've spent outdoor, under the ocean, above the ocean. It's just, just phenomenal. But I have a very kind of an interesting question. We kind of think we know the answer. Sir, are you by any chance a paleo nerd? <laughs> well, I am. I oh, am. You know, oh, uh... <laughs> yay. Well, you said so in an email, but are you really? But Brian? how? How and why? Well, only from the standpoint of that I'm fascinated with uh, paleontology. I love fossils. I love, you know, um, ancient realms. I love looking at raised paintings of such things. Uh, when I was a kid, <clears throat> I used to have a rock collection. So every week or so, I would have my parents take me to the local uh, gem and mineral store, and I would buy rocks, you know, geodes or uh, tiger's eyes or amethysts or all kinds of things, barite roses. But one of the coolest things I ever got when I was a kid was a trilobite oh, man. Uh, uh, fossil. And I still have it. I actually gave it to my daughter, who's 17 now, and she's got it in her bedroom. But I still go in and look at it, uh, you know, That's every so Ray's often. That's spirit animal, the trilobite. <laughs> got Is one it? right there on my Whoa, arm, man. It's look my, at that. My first trilob yeah. my first tattoo, Brian. So, Brian. Very cool. So, yeah, I've, you know, I've, uh, we, we have a few mutual friends, but also I was, I was reading through your books and uh, I was reading your biography a little bit and you fell in love. You said it was love at first sight, but it was mm. the ocean that you fell in love with. So as a kid, you were lived not too far from the ocean, but you fell in love with the ocean. I, you know, yeah, I did for sure. Uh, I didn't live super close to the ocean, though. I grew up in Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. And I lived about an hour away. I was in a little landlocked uh, town, a textile mill town, where there were woolen mills and textile mills. And, you know, it was an old manufacturing blue-collar town. I grew up, uh, you know, working in those mills myself after high school or football practice. So this is I the late 1800s? This... <laughs> yeah, that was... Where they employed children in the textile mills? <laughs> That's right. I tell time. you what, it felt like that. These mills hadn't changed since... Probably the 14th century. This is in century. Worcester? But, uh, it was in the Worcester County area. That's my right. sister it was in lives a little in Shrewsbury. Town. Shrewsbury. Oh, yeah. Well, not far from Shrewsbury at all. I was in a little town called Uxbridge. Oh, but right. my, my parents would take me to the beaches of Rhode Island and New Hampshire, Maine, uh, Cape Cod in the summertime. 
And I absolutely fell in love with the sea as a child. You know, I, I think I loved the notion of adventure. I grew up watching the old Cousteau documentaries right. and reading National Geographic, but I wanted to do many things. You know, this was the 60s and I dreamed of being an astronaut or being Tarzan out in the jungles or, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. But but there certainly was something particularly uh, special about the ocean. I remember coming home at the end of those days, you know, in the back seat of the station wagon and all sunburned and salty. Oh, yeah, and, no, I'm there with you, man. Yeah. You know that drill, right? Yeah. And, and, and having this, uh, this mix of feeling, on, on one hand, you know, I was at peace. I was very content. But on the other hand, my mind was sort of racing about what was underneath those waves. You know, what, what could I find if I could put on a tank and go explore? Wow. So you decided, you... you, you you were working in the mills. I, you even have, you were a corrugated <laughs> box salesman there for a bit. Yes, and, uh, I, I saw was. that. You went to I Worcester was. State uh, University, WSU. I went to another WSU, by the way, Washington State oh. University. But Oh, wow. Yeah. But I, I know that you began to go to, um, you, you picked up photography and you, you took that camera underwater. And there is an interesting connection, a mutual friend of ours, with Bill Kurtzinger and a certain yeah. pirate ship wreck. Yeah. That I was reading about in your uh, beautiful book, um, Ocean Ocean Soul, you credit right. Bill with kind of giving you your big break. Yeah, no question about it. Um, so what you said is exactly true, Ray, that, you know, I, I knew from an early age that I wanted to explore the ocean. Initially, that's all I thought I wanted to do was just explore and discover. Started scuba diving when I was about 15 years old, and it was maybe a year or two after that. I was attending a dive show in Boston, the Boston Sea Rover Show, the, the longest running show dive show in the world, hmm. still going on today. And as a teenager sitting in that audience, I saw photographers and filmmakers presenting their work. And I often describe it as an epiphany. I, I remember saying, that's how I want to explore the ocean with a camera. But, you know, I came from this little town. Again, as I said, I, my parents didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't able to get on a plane and fly anywhere. I didn't have the resources to buy fancy equipment. So I, I chipped away at it. I worked on charter boats in Rhode Island, shipwreck diving boats uh, for no pay. I, I was just doing that oh, really? to, wow. to, yeah, to facilitate going diving. I would be in the wintertime under the hulls of those boats with grinders, you know, grinding the hulls in the snow and doing all of that for free wow. just so that come summertime, I could go diving for free. So, you know, I sort of cut my teeth on North Atlantic wreck diving and, and doing some marine life photography. And from the very beginning, my dream was to work for National Geographic. That was sort of the Mount Everest. But there was three underwater photographers working there in those days, and they all seemed very well established, didn't seem to be going anywhere anytime well, there soon. there was Bill, David Dubelay, and who was the other one? And Flip, uh, Flip Nicklin, Flip, who, right. who was kind okay. of a whale uh, photographer. But, I mean, Bill had done that too, of course. But, um, but Bill's work really spoke to me. There was something very special. He published a book in the late 70s called Wake of the Whale. Yes, yeah, it was beautiful. a large format book. Yeah. And I, I remember buying that book. I, I was, I think I was in a Barnes and Noble or whatever the, the bookshop was at the time. And I saw it, you know, uh, prominently displayed there. And I, I bought it and I remember coming home and, and just couldn't take my eyes off it. His photos and the stories that were written in there, it was uh, Ken Brower was yes, the, yeah. the writer. And, you know, he was relating these stories of Bill being in 
Hawaii or being in Antarctica or in the Arctic. And it, it stirred my soul. It truly did. And to this day, I still have that book sitting on the bookshelf. It's all, you know, dog-eared and waterlogged. I think I read it in the bathtub when I was a kid. You know, I did all of this. Did you stop uh, Bill Kurtzinger? Uh, what would you do? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I certainly would have. Uh, I might have actually a little bit, but he didn't know it. Um and, you know, I, I actually, that, that organization that I saw that first dive show, the Boston Sea Rovers, they used to have a lot of diving notable people come through every year. And I ultimately became president of the Boston oh, Sea wow. Rovers, okay. and I was running the, their nighttime show. So I got to meet a lot of people. I met Dubolet, I, I met Cousteau, I met, you know, all these very famous divers and photographers. But Kurt Singer was the guy I never actually met until quite a few years later, and we were both in Florida at a, at a dive convention, the DEMA conference or DEMA show, and um, <clears throat> I got to meet him. And, you know, it was, it, for me, it was like, you know, if you're, if you're a baseball fan, right, you're yeah. meeting Babe Ruth or something. And um, it, it was just over the moon. He was very nice, and, and we struck up a friendship, and I ultimately had a picture published in National Geographic. It was a very rare fish called an oar fish. It was the legendary oh, Yeah, we were going to ask you about serpent. that. I was, oh. I was warming up to that, Ben. <laughs> all right, well, get into well, it, Ray. Get into it. I mean, well, just, first well, of all, uh, describe an oarfish because they've been washing yeah. up on beach, beaches lately, especially out okay, in Florida, yeah. I believe. No, no, oh, no, really? California. Okay. California. Was that California? Baja. Anyway, they're massive. Describe it. Yep. So, well, the story is that I was in the Bahamas uh, just on a, a dive trip myself to, to do some photography, and I was out at a place called the Atec buoy. It was a buoy that the U.S. Navy uh, anchored out in the Bahama Trench, the, the, the tongue of the ocean, very deep water where they did submarine testing. And the water there, I don't know, it was probably like 18,000 feet deep or some extraordinary wow. number, but it was very, very deep anyway. And um, I was photographing silky sharks and um, Mahi Mahi Dorado were coming in. And, and on that dive, I also saw a blue marlin, but it, it came up, it was chasing a little yellowfin tuna, and then it saw me and it, it jackknifed and swam away. So I was wow. all bummed out that I, I didn't get a picture of the blue marlin. And then out in the distance, I saw this thing that I had no idea what it was. It was about 10 feet long. It was maybe three or four inches wide, laterally flat. It was shiny silver. And from a distance, I thought it was some sort of fishing lure that was right. being dragged by a, a wow. uh, by a sport fishing boat. But I didn't hear any boats. So curiosity got the best of me, and I swam out after it. And as I got closer, I could see it was a living fish. But it was oriented vertically in the water column, and wow. it had these two very long uh, monofilament thin appendages, you know, that are called pelvic rays. Oh, pelvic. Out, oh. Out, yep. And so it looked like a cross almost. And the, and the so you're saying the tail had, was aiming at the bottom and the head was yeah, aiming yeah. to the it's, surface? It's sitting Correct. in the water like a pencil, Dave. Right. Just yeah, pointing right. straight up. Wow. Right. And it had a crest on its head like a bird and these really big eyes. So I suspected it was a deep water animal, but I didn't know what it was. So as I got closer... It, it rotated those pelvic rays alongside its body, so it was all sort of hydrodynamic, and it just sank perfectly oh, wow. in the water column, oh, wow. like a like somebody dropped a sword. It was shiny silver. So I got, I think I got three pictures, one of which was the better one, and um, I sent it to National Geographic. I after doing some research, I, I thought it was a uh, oarfish, 
And they came back, they sent it to a researcher at William and Mary University, and he said, it is the first picture of a living oarfish. Wow. So they published it. It became a big deal in ichthyology Dude, world. Dude, I, I remember seeing that picture. I did not Dude. know that was yours. It was, <laughs> that, that rocked my world. And I, I have tracked down oarfish over the years. Have you read, the, there's the great yeah. uh, Tyson Roberts, I think, is the guy who's oh, the oarfish right. fanatic yeah. in the world. Who, yeah. His theory is that they shed their tails. Did you know this? Oh, wow. No, I didn't know no, that. That they, they actually get to like 40, 50 feet long, and then they shed a tail, and they start growing, and then it's just the head. Oh, but my God. But you're the first one to see one. No, I'm not making that up, man. I'm not <laughs> making that up. And for because of this interview, I'm going to have to... Yeah. Tyson was after yeah. me to do the picture for his his book on oh, them. Definitely, but you got the first photo. Does Bill tie into this story? Bill? Well, yes, he does. Only uh, from the standpoint of me stalking him. So I, I I wanted to stalk him, but I never actually met him until I met him in Florida. And then you know maybe a year or two went by. The picture was published first in National Geographic in 1996 in the December issue. And the phone rings and it's Bill Kurtzinger. He calls me and says, Brian, I saw that picture. That's amazing. And we started talking and we, you know, got to know each other a little bit better. Lo and behold, I was doing a, a trip to Australia to, to photograph whale sharks and great white sharks, two, two separate locations. And I said, Bill, you know, I got a spot open if you'd like to join me. He was doing a tiger shark story for the magazine. So he said, well, I'm going to be in Australia. Let's coordinate. So anyway, he joined me and then we did another trip to the Bahamas to that very spot where I saw the oarfish. Didn't see another one, but it was a good trip. We had fun and we became good friends. And then one day he called me and he said, look, uh, I've got two stories that I'm doing for National Geographic, one that I want to do and one that I don't want to do. <laughs> and he said, the one I don't want to do is the shipwreck story. And it's a pirate shipwreck. And he said, you know, I was out there, I don't know, a year ago and there's nothing there. The visibility is absolutely horrible. And if, but if I don't do it, they're going to find somebody else. So if you want, he knew I was doing a lot of shipwreck photography in those days. He said, I will recommend you, refer you. But he said, look, Keep in mind that with National Geographic, you're only going to get one chance. If you blow it, they're not going to come back to you. And I think with this story, you've got a 98% chance of failure. He's a doom and gloom guy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so I thought about it for about two seconds and I said, well, that's okay. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of shipwreck stuff and I think I could probably pull it off. So he referred me and they looked at my work and they said, we'll give you a shot. And they sent me out there and pretty much everything Bill said was true. But they started to find sections of the hull. They were using these mailbox devices on their propellers to blow away the sand. It was a pirate shipwreck sank in 1717. The Wida Galley. The Wida. Yep, that's right. Oh, Wida. Wida. Wida Wida. Yep. And anyway, and, um, you know, I figured out ways to get photos. I brought down... Uh, these thousand watt uh, cable lights run from generators instead of using my strobes to reduce the backscatter. And I was using negative stock film instead of slide, which gave me a little more latitude. And I did macro pictures. I, I found, you, you know, you Spanish You knocked doubloons. it out of the park. You knocked it we, out of the park. We got it. But, but, it, was, but we, it was a co-credit. Uh, co so Bill had done a lot of the artifact pictures and oh, okay. uh, I did the underwater. So we, I shared my first published story with Bill in National Geographic. And how That's how so deep cool. was this wreck? Uh, it was very shallow. It was maybe 30 feet. Yeah, maybe a little deeper. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. That's a cool yeah. story. I just talked to Bill yesterday in preparation for oh, this. Oh, wow. He says, oh, hello. Uh, I did a coffee label for he's do doing coffee, but 
You'll be oh, pleased to yeah. know he's got a major exhibit that he's doing in Port Townsend uh, next month. Awesome. So, yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, he's uh, I mean, at it. he, you know, Bill continues to inspire. I mean, <clears throat> he's done so much in his life and, and he's always been a pioneer. You know, yeah. I just, I always look to him. What kind of camera and equipment were you using at the start of your career? Because there's certainly there's no d digital didn't exist and the housings would have mm. to be proprietary or, or invented in, in the workshop. Well, um, so you're right. I was not using digital. I was shooting film. But there were, in fact, uh, a few housing manufacturers in the early days. I was I think my first housings were um, made by a Canadian company called Aquatica. And then I switched to an Austrian-made uh, housing uh, called Subal. Today, I'm using something called a Nauticam. But um, I switched to digital in 2005, and I did it begrudgingly. I, I remember, you know, sort of kicking and screaming. I didn't want to do it, but... And nobody was forcing me. I could have shot with a tintype, you know, at Geographic. <laughs> they didn't care. But, um, but you know, I started to see the advantages. And, and the first uh, story I did, or the first assignment I went on, it was a, a shark story that I proposed in the Bahamas. And I, I remember bringing all my brand new digital gear and all of my old film equipment with me, too, because I didn't trust the digital. What resolution were you shooting at at the start? Yeah, those, I can't remember. Those... 10 megapixel or something? <laughs> oh, if that, if that, yeah, it might have been even a little bit less. My first camera was, a, I'm a Nikon shooter, so I was shooting a Nikon D2X. What we're while we're just talking uh, some of the tech stuff here, I I've been watching all your films, you know, uh, as many as I could before the interview here. Watched all the secrets, <laughs> secrets of the whales. But I was astonished to see that you know it wasn't really the old Jacques Cousteau thing with the scuba gear. You're like free diving and snorkeling with yeah. Is that really your preferred way? And it's it's pretty much you and a camera. Yeah, that's right. Um, with uh, with whales, marine mammals in general, but particularly with whales. Uh, I found that free diving is really the way to go. I mean, the the scuba does make bubbles and, and that tends to frighten the whales. So it's not particularly good for getting close, which you need to do. And the other thing is that even if they're moving relatively slowly, if you've got a socializing group of sperm whales and, and they're just sort of playing and, you know, moving slowly, for me to keep up with them, um, I got to be nimble and it, with a 50 pound scuba tank and, and a buoyancy compensator. Yeah. Weight, yeah. So, you know, even though... It's it's limiting to have to hold your breath. Uh, it, it still ends up being more productive. Is there a crew with you? I mean, they're filming you, mm. of course, doing some of the stuff. Or is there? Yep. Oh, you'd have to have a boat crew. You'd have to have a right. Boat. Well, I know, but I'm just wondering when he's in the water, are there three or four guys behind you, kind of? It's really a good question, Ray. Uh, not always. So, um, just to, to to give a little bit of context for Secrets of the Whale. So, I I proposed that project to National Geographic, and I started with the magazine. And where it got approved, but given the scope and scale of what I wanted to do, I knew that they wouldn't be able to afford that the time in the field and and sort of that that effort. So I went to the National Geographic Society, and I, I wrote and proposed a, a three year fellowship um, that they had never done before. They they had given some fellowships or internships, but they were usually short duration. But this was the first long three year deal. And then when I got that approved, I went to the television division and 
said, you know, would you like to do a documentary film? And we turned it into four films. Yeah. And then I went to the book division and said, you know, well, look, I'm doing a TV series and a, and a magazine story. So how about a book? And we did a book as well. But with the TV component, once that got approved, I was going to be a producer um, and I would be a character in it, although it was really always about the whales, less about me, of course. And they hired a production company, Red Rock Films, to manage the production. So they did, you know, all the sausage making. They brought in all the editors and the associate producers and script writers and so forth. And we collaborated on this notion of whale culture, which was the original idea for, for my story. Wow. And where does James Cameron come into it? Uh... Yeah. So so Cameron, of course, is a explorer in residence at oh, the see. Society. Okay. And I had met Jim over the years several times. We knew each other. And then he heard about this project and he became interested. And, um, you know, it was perfect to have him at that executive producer level because, of course, he brings this unique set of skills. He's not only a master storyteller who can invent these fictional worlds and build the equipment to film them, but he also is a great ocean explorer. So he understands. But, you know, he was able to look at the rough cuts that were coming back, the footage, the dailies, and, and really shape the narrative oh, wow. and, yeah, that's, that's and cool. help with that. So it was a, it was a real was wonderful on. team effort. He was. Would he see dailies and then say, uh, yeah, but go ahead and get the, another shot if you can? And so he'd kind of on you know, the fly I, or... I don't know that it was necessarily dailies, but it was certainly, you know, looking at rough cuts or or as things were being pieced together, he would say, well, you know, we need to explain this a little bit more. You know, most audience people might not even know that whales are not fish. We have to tell them that they breathe air and <laughs> yeah. that they're yeah. mammals and, you know, so some, some basic stuff. Tell us about the four whales you chose and, yeah. why. Mm. and why. And why, yeah. So first of all, again, for, for some context, you know, my last big whale story for National Geographic was about right whales, uh, particularly started with the North Atlantic right whale, which is the most endangered whale in the world. <clears throat> and that was published in 2008. Since that time, I had wanted to do a multi-species whale story. In, in 2015, I did a cover story about dolphin intelligence, about dolphin cognition. And of course, whales are, or dolphins are just smaller whales. They are indeed whales. But I was still struggling with that narrative, and I was reading a lot of scientific publications, talking to scientists, uh, attending conferences, and I noticed this, this theme of culture, the fact that within a genetically identical species, whales are doing things differently, much the way humans were doing. And that really appealed to me, and I, I talked to one scientist in particular, Dr. Shane Garrow, who's a Canadian sperm whale biologist who, for the last 15 years, has been working with sperm whales in the Eastern Caribbean in the island, near the island nation of Dominica. And he was the one who really made it gel for me. He, he explained, you know, he, one of his favorite things to say is that the difference between behavior and culture is this. He says, you know, behavior is what we do. Culture is how we do it. So most humans, for example, eat food with utensils. That is behavior. But whether you use chopsticks or knives and forks, uh, is your culture. But right. isn't culture also passed down? Isn't it taught? Yes. It's taught yeah, it's, as it's well. Taught. It's both. And they've proven that that exists within most whale communities. Now, Carl Safina, we interviewed recently. Yes. And yeah. uh, he was all part of that Caribbean study as well. Yeah, well, he went down and spent time with Shane. Right. That's right. right. Uh, for his book, uh, exactly. So when I heard that, 
I, you know, uh, I said, that's fantastic. And then he started to explain to me that the sperm whales that he's studying, he had identified over the years about two dozen, about 20 or 24 individual family units of sperm whales that he said all belonged to a clan because they spoke the same dialect, the same language, and that they didn't intermingle with other genetically identical sperm whales that happened to move into those waters. So when I heard this, I imagined the, the neighborhoods of New York at the turn of the 20th century. What are you doing the Irish in the Italians. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I said, that's amazing. So then I started to extrapolate and look at other whales. So humpback whales, you know, the males, um, they, they have these singing competitions every year. And, and it's been described as the horizontal transmission of culture. Right. And then I looked at belugas and with orca, you know, and their feeding preferences and food and the feeding strategies and so forth. And I said... You know, this is a new way of looking at, at the ocean. And my hope was that a lot of my work has been focused on environmental issues. And even though this wasn't overtly about conservation, I said that maybe it could be a very powerful conservation story, because if we could get people to see the ocean through the lens of culture, it, it's a game changer. It changes the way we see things, you know? Yeah, really. I mean, if, you, if you're depicting marine mammals as these intelligent creatures that have a culture that they teach their young, that basically there's not this like magic, you know, instinct. These are very specific things they must learn in order to survive. And, and I think one of the coolest scenes, you know, and, and you talked about it is really kind of an emotional thing. And when, when that orca offered you the stingray, you know? Yeah. And uh, absolutely, that was uh, like you're watching it, and it's like it turns to you, and do you want some? You know, and it, it was off. extraordinary. But, but, isn't, and, yeah. but isn't there a precedent yeah. of of orcas doing that to other orcas, and that's why it was significant during your encounter? Yeah. Yes, uh, in fact, they do food share. So um, again, for to to give a little bit of perspective on this, I in that year that happened in 2019. That was September of 2019. And I was our birthday months. Oh, that's right. Look at you. Wow. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. You got a big uh, one this Libra. year, I noticed. Yeah. Brian. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I had been already that year just traveling nonstop. I started in Dominica. I was in Sri Lanka. I was in the Azores. Uh, I was in uh, the Canadian Arctic for six weeks, came home for literally, I think, a day or two, and then went to New Zealand. And New Zealand was going to be of the 24 locations or so, that was gonna be my shortest trip. It was only about nine or 10 days. And we were trying to see something that was really hard to see, these orca feeding on, on rays. So I was working with a, a researcher, Ingrid Visser, Dr. Ingrid Visser, who's dedicated her, lives, uh, her life to studying orca lives. And she put out the, the APB you know, on the internet and said, if anybody anywhere in New Zealand sees orcas near shore feeding, let us know. So this one morning, we get a call. Uh, I think it was Ingrid that called me at like 6 a.m. I had the truck uh, already packed. We had our, I was sharing a motel with uh, the sound guy for the film. We jumped in. We drove three hours north, uh, the North Island. Is that like the Bay of Islands? Uh, yeah, almost in that re area. Yeah, we were north of Tutacaca, up near the, the Bay of Islands. That's right. Yeah, and, and so here's this family of orca at the edge of a, a harbor, and they're in very shallow water. I couldn't believe how shallow it was. And they're hunting. So, orca, uh, so, so Ingrid gets us into position near the orcas, and she's telling me, you know, wait, wait, wait. Okay, get in now. I slip into the water with the cameraman, Kenna Skole, great, great diver, great cameraman. This was one of the times I did have a little scuba tank on, and I start swimming towards 
the orca. And here comes this adult female, and I can see the stingray hanging out of her mouth. And my, my mind is on overload. It's like, oh my God, I've never seen this. 40 years of diving, never seen that. And as I'm getting closer to her, she drops it. And I'm thinking, oh, I missed it. You know, I didn't get the shot and, and she's going to just leave me in the dust now. So I swam down to the bottom and I, I knelt on the sandy sea floor next to the dead ray now. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe she's going to come back. And then sure enough, out of the right corner of my eye, I see this giant orca, you know, this black and white behemoth moving in slowly. And she swims behind my back. I lose sight of her. She emerges on, on my left side. It comes out of my left side of my vision. And then she stops directly in front of me and the and the ray is between us and she's just hovering and she's looking at me looking at the ray looking at me looking at the ray as if to say are you gonna grab that and when i didn't <laughs> are do you it done with that? She, yeah exactly <laughs> and she bends she bends over and she picks it up very gently and then turns and I, I i'm framing it up and you get the shot and then she turns and another member of her family comes in and then they begin to rip it apart they you know food but someone share. someone in your crew filmed that experience they were behind yeah. you it was kenna that. yeah 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 kenna scola who jumped in with me and i didn't even see him he was just there but you know i was so focused on when the that all happened did you realize did, did you question like did she just kind of drop that or was that an offering or you know i mean yeah. You know, was that I, an I gotta accident? say, was this intentional? I thought about that after, and I guess part of my thinking was just don't, you know, don't screw it up, get the shot. Uh, the other part of me was a twelve-year-old boy that was like, "Look at this! Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, six feet away from an orca. This is awesome." <laughs> I have a question about yeah. being so close to such a, an amazing and huge and cognizant uh, animal. Mm. Um, when, when I've been out in the wilds where there are crocs or sharks or tiger sharks, and you don't see them, but you know they're you're in their environment, there have mm. been several times in my life where I've had that feeling that something was watching me, and I took steps to get away, get out, or move out of a potential place where I was the bottom of the food chain. So mm. I'm sure you must have had that type of experience where you feel as though you, you, oh, I yeah. think it's a, it's an innate uh, something that goes way way back in the depths of time in, in our uh, our lizard brain when yeah, we know it's our lateral line that we actually have, Dave. You know, our <laughs> lateral could, line could be could it, be. It feels that. But you feel like you're going to be eaten, and it's, yes, and it's it's unbelievable how how that is. So the question is: so here you are with a massive orca, a, a two or three ton individual inches away from your nose, face to face. Hmm. Do you feel something? Do you feel the energy? I mean, obviously you can see through with your eyes, but you must be able to feel something. You know, it's such a great question, David. Um, and, and I have had that experience with saltwater crocodiles in Mexico. I had one stalking me about a nine footer and I felt this, this primal fear in the pit of my stomach you know it was it was unlike anything i'd ever had i've had it once before i was in the south pacific yep and i i it was at dusk and i had over 60 gray reef sharks all around me and they were coming in hot and you know normally with sharks i don't have a problem if they get a little frisky and they bump their nose on my dome port they they go away but these guys were doing tight 360 turns coming right back in and behind that one was another five behind that was another 10 and you know behind that i couldn't see and they all had their pecs down they were jockeying for position and and you feel like you're being hunted which you are and and it was it was not a feeling that i ever want to repeat but i have to say that i never felt that with orca it was 
it was a whole different level. I, I, I would have to say, and I don't know if it was just my own sort of fantasy, but I do think that that high degree of cognition that you described was evident. I, it's almost like this mutual respect. It, it, we're, we're not communicating, but we are communicating. And 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 I just never ever so felt it's theory threatened. of mind. It's I I am aware you are there, and they're aware yes. that you are there, and we're both thinking, feeling. Absolutely, I think that's the obvious thing with orcas is because it's a culturally learned thing for them not to eat us that's humans. Right. That's right. They have to teach their young that, like, don't mess with yeah. those creatures. You that's know? exactly right. You know, and I was talking to Cameron James Cameron, and he said, you know, Brian, many. Human cultures, of course, they, they offer food when they meet somebody. So it's very possible that she was doing that. She dropped it for you. I think that really was that a, a, so a moment cool. like that. that is so well, let cool. me ask you this. Sometimes, you know, an animal is sending out sensory uh, pings and literally sperm whales. I was just wondering, you've been in the water yeah. with sperm whales. I've had some people tell me, I don't know if it's true, but can a sperm whale actually kill prey with those clicks? I mean, you, you describe, what's it feel like when a sperm yes. whale clicks you? Tell us what a click is. Well, I'll, let, me, let me tell you a story. Uh, years ago in the 1990s, I spent three summers um, going to the Azores to photograph uh, sperm whales. And this was just before I started working for National Geographic. So I was doing this on my own. And I had a day where I, I, I'd never seen any of the sperm whales. Spent weeks and weeks and never had any luck. <clears throat> and then this one day, there's about five of them sort of just moving very slowly. And it's a miracom, glassy calm day, blue, blue ocean, blue sky. Perfect conditions. Perfect conditions. I slip into the water with my housing and I just move way out. The boat drifts far away and I'm out there alone. And these whales are, are slowly moving past me. And again, I was shooting film. So I had 36 frames and my little camera housing. Mm -hmm. So I, I buzzed through all 36 frames as they were passing by. And there was a mom and calf among the five and they sort of just moved past and they were gone. And then the fifth whale, the last one, which I think was an adult female, part of that, that family unit, just sort of swam down about 20 feet or so and was just hanging out below me. So the boat was far away. I couldn't go and get another roll of film. I couldn't get another camera. And I just decided I was going to check it out and, and enjoy it. So crystal clear water, I'm looking down at my fins and I swam down maybe 10 feet and just from a distance was looking at her, all the wrinkles and scars on her body. And then she rolled over and I came back to get a breath. She rolled over and looked at me with her, you know, one eye and kind of started moving her tail and spun around, still below me, but she opened her mouth and then closed it and opened and closed it. And she was opening and closing her mouth and she started pinging me with sonar, with, with those clicks. And I could feel it resonating in my chest. It was like in my body cavity, these, these very wow. notable Morse code clicks. It was, you know, echolocation. So I started to, she started swimming towards me very slowly, uh -oh. but sideways and just with her mouth open and closed. And, and I think that's where the sound was sort of resonating. I think they can do it from their the head, their as well. The, yeah. Yeah. But, but it seemed as though the mouth in this case was, was part of that equation. Oh. And she was on her side 
So, you know, again, I'd spent weeks trying to get close to one of these things. Now I've got one practically in front of me with its mouth open and I can't even take a picture because I'm out of film. So I'm swimming backwards, I'm backpedaling, and she just is slowly following me and slowly following me and clicking me, ping, ping, ping. And I'm just moving. And finally, I roll over on my, my belly, my stomach, and I start kicking a little harder. And she's just staying right behind me. And now I'm kicking as hard as I can to swim out of the, back to the boat. And she's just right on my heels. Now, clearly, if she wanted me, she could have had me. But she was Wait, just... you mean had, had you as prey or dinner or a mate? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, any of the above, I suppose. I, I, had, no, I had no recourse. I read that those clicks, they can possibly see as though, see your internal organs, as though they can yeah. see it as an x-ray, because sonar, right. yeah, you see the external part of an object, but it's also possible you can see even deeper into uh, yes. a creature. Have you heard anything uh, on that? I, I, I have, and I, I think that that's very true. I think that their, their sonar ability, their echolocation ability exceeds anything that we can truly imagine. Navies have studied it, but theirs are, are better than, uh, than than navies. So I think she probably knew a lot about me, probably knew what I had for dinner the night before, um, which might have been calamari, actually. That might have been the reason why. Uh, I think she was following me. She but, might have been looking for squid beaks, yeah. Yeah, but um, in any case, the, the you know, I'm waving to the, to, to the Zodiac, uh, but I don't want him to come in on a straight line because there were whales there. So he did this big arc around me, and as he got closer... I just swam and said, give me another housing because I thought I might be able to get a picture. But by that time, she had dived a little bit deeper. She was still just hanging out about 20, 30 feet below. I could see her well, but, you know, she lost interest. But I'm convinced that she was just keeping me away from that calf. Those clicks, I mean, it just really, I mean, you could just there, you could feel it in your body, huh? Yeah, it's just a very wow. loud, a very loud click, uh, like a Morse code. Have you heard of the uh, the documentary? It just came out called Fathom about the two. I, I have. Have you watched yeah, it yet? Uh, I haven't. Uh, I saw the trailer, though. It's yep. just absolutely brilliant. I wish I could remember the doctor's name, but a woman in Alaska up, the, up there uh, near uh, St. Petersburg, she right. has a theory that she has been able to distinguish humpback whales, their greeting call. And she actually played that and she did all this research and, and the data suggests they all said that she said hello through a hydrophone. Yeah. And they all said hello back. It's amazing. Yeah. I think it might be Ellen Garland. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, in any case. Yes, Brian is right. The film Fathom follows Dr. Ellen Garland and Dr. Michelle Fournay, both humpback whale researchers who make astounding discoveries with whale communications. It's a must-see film, and you can find a link to the Fathom trailer on our website, paleonerds.com. You know, studying whale language is really the new exciting frontier, I think, among many in whale science. There's a new effort that just got underway by uh, my friend Dr. David Gruber, who was given a Ted Audacious Prize of like $30 million and with National Geographic. And he and Shane Guerra, who I mentioned, are doing this multi-year project now to try to crack sperm whale language. So um, I actually emailed him the other day and said, uh, so what are they saying? You know, he's been at it for like three months. I said, come on. And he said, they, they said, uh, uh, that guy with the camera can stay back in Boston. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're saying. Hey, you yeah. know, uh, speaking of amorous um, sperm whales, I noticed in the, uh, the so this is a, uh, this is, since it's not the Disney Channel, I noticed some footage 
where there was a, a large male that showed up and uh, he had amorous ways on his mind in that one. And I was like, holy cow, I've never seen that on Disney before. No, you uh, must know actually a lot of the real secrets of the whales because they're <laughs> mammals and they fall in love. What have you seen that we could talk about here in this podcast? Well, I, I have seen some of these big uh, males. In fact, it was in uh, I've seen it in, in Dominica for sure, uh, where a male. And again, just um, to, to give what I know about that. So these whale families are matrilineal. They are led by the older, wiser females of the group. And if there are male calves, they tend to stick around with the family until maybe age 14 or so, 13, 14. And then they swim away and nobody knows exactly where they go, but they end up usually coming back to those native waters, probably to mate and, and look at other families and so forth to, 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 to do their thing. But, um, but very little is known about that. When the males are in the region, you hear a very distinct sound. They make a clang. Hmm. Uh, so the, 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 the normal sounds that you will hear when they're feeding, when the whales are down 600 meters in the prey field looking for squid, you'll hear this echolocation, this click, click, click. So they're looking for food. When they are socializing, they use these codas. It's a, it's a pattern of clicks. So, you know, the ones in uh, Dominica that I heard, they make a, a, a pattern of clicks that's kind of like click, 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 click. And it sounds like you're at a football game, you know, dun, 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 dun. Um, but when you go to other places in the world, you hear completely different languages, different dialects. But when the males are there, there's this very, you know, metallic clang sound that they make. So the male... It's a macho mating call. I think it is. I think they just show up dance, and yeah. they make their clang. And it's like, ladies, I am I am in the audience. I am here now. And uh, it changes everything. I mean, the, you see the behaviors all change and their, their normal daily foraging patterns and socializing patterns all change. But I saw a, a giant male sperm whale in Sri Lanka. I, uh, we were out there for three weeks in 2019 in a part of Sri Lanka that doesn't really have an infrastructure for diving or going out to look for whales, but we hired these fishing boats and we would go out every day, very long distances. And we saw some big family units, you know, maybe 30 whales or more in one of these families. But a couple of days, we saw this one giant uh, sperm whale male and I was able to get in the water on one day, I would say he was maybe 50 feet long. I mean, just much bigger than any of the other females we had mm. seen or even the, the juveniles. And I, I named him Zeus. He yeah. was all scarred up. The front of his face, the, you know, sort of the, the end point of his head, his nose was flat and white. It was like he was ramming ships his whole life. It was just amazing. <laughs> wow. When I first saw him underwater, I, I couldn't figure out what it was. It was just solid white. It was like Moby Dick or something. And um, as he swam past me, he, uh, you know, he looked at me with that very soulful eye. I have a picture in my book, Secrets of oh. the Whales of Zeus. And he was just all scarred up. And, you know, the, the stories I'm sure he could tell. But he had previously been, when I jumped in the water, he was with two females. Uh, so, you know, he was getting busy. He was busy post coital. I think I might have, it might have been coital interruptus. Yeah. Uh, I might have, Ooh, I might have, so he wasn't too happy. Oh man. Yeah. yeah I oh, know. You're, you're, like... you're that guy. <laughs> That's right. Now there's another documentary out there and I think it's called the loneliest whale in the world about this frequency. This whale has, has been screaming this, this call on, on a particular yeah. frequency. 
It's actually called The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52. And it's a beautiful documentary about the search for a whale that has been calling out at 52 hertz, a frequency unrecognized by other whales. This film is beautiful and enlightening, and I highly recommend you put it up next in your watch list. But their sounds can travel pretty much, they say, can crisscross the oceans of the world. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, it's been said that pre-industrialization, you know, before there was ship traffic shipping. and ocean noise. Yeah, shipping's the big issue. Blue whales could, could potentially speak, you know, to each other across the entire Pacific Ocean Basin. You know, a, a, a sperm whale, I mean, a, a blue whale in Australia, say, could talk to one in California. But uh, but that doesn't happen today. Well, you, you spent uh, a lot of time uh, here in Southeast Alaska and, and then chasing humpbacks elsewhere in the world. The, the culture of learning the bubble net feeding, one of the things I learned uh, watching your the documentary and The Secret of the Whales with the episode, the uh, humpback episode, was that they're like old buddies. They're getting together again. They all know yeah. each other. It's like, hey, and they all... But that's a culture that mm -hmm. learned joint bubble net thing kind of right. did it start here in southeast alaska and then spread elsewhere is that what yeah. the thinking is yeah that's my understanding i was working with dr andy zabo who is one of the co-founders of the Alaska Whale Foundation. And we worked off his boat and, and we were out there working uh, with the humpbacks doing the bubble net feeding. And according to Andy, if I got this right, you know, it really started uh, some time ago. And, and there was just this one group of whales, you know, 10 or 12 whales that sort of figured out this way of, of creating this bubble net around the herring. They mm -hmm. One whale blows the the ring, and they all have different jobs. Uh, one sounds the call to begin the process. One blows the, the bubble net. They flash their white undersides to tighten the bait ball, and then they all rise up through. But the interesting thing is that, you know, these are the whales that spend winter in Hawaii, and there's about maybe 2,500 humpbacks that, that come to those Alaskan waters in the summertime, but only about 60 of them, give or take, engage in this communal feeding. It's members of different families that come together to work cooperatively to do the, the bubble net feeding. Now, the interesting thing as well is that recent science has been published that suggests that individual humpbacks can be and are as successful at feeding, doing the bubble net themselves, than the groups. So the question then is, why are these groups getting together every summer. Right, and right. as you said, I think it's old friends who want to have dinner. Yeah, social, every social, summer. Yeah, social interactions. Totally. Let's but, bubble yeah. tonight. But you said, yeah. you, you said they started this some time ago. Now, whales have been around for 40 million years and probably the humpback in 10 million years unchanged, basically. So mm. is, this, is this a learned thing recently or where are we talking? We don't know. You know, I, I should know the answer to that, David. And I, my my belief was that it has been seen for many decades, but I don't know that it goes back centuries. Is there you know, I don't American know that scribbling. Yeah, or, I I well, don't know about that, right, and I right, right. I don't want to say the wrong thing. If we're talking culture, I'm betting there are things that are learned or kept uh, for generations, and then maybe they're lost and they're learned again, you know? Sure. But I have seen uh, individual humpback whales. We had one that was visiting here in Ketchikan. The, uh, Phoenix was his name. He was entertaining everybody. Last December, he didn't go to Hawaii. 
But you could just watch him systematically going up and down the channel, bubble feeding all by himself. And dolphins, some dolphins wow. do that but, too in the mud, but right? He oh, was, yeah. But he was just bubble yes. feeding, and you know, and one, and he's just an individual doing it. But I like the idea that it's sort of a social thing, and yes, are, are they? There's males and females that uh, bubble together. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Mm. And um, you know, the interesting thing is that some of those males that are working cooperatively in Alaska to do this this feeding behavior. Those are the same males that would be competing against each other for females in in Hawaii. So you know, at one moment they're rivals, the next minute they're they're friends. And I think there's a lot of parallels there with human society, well, right? Dave, I mean, Dave not, and I are like that a lot. So you know, right, I mean, one right. week when it's it comes good, and then you, you go to dinner and have a beer, but the next week you're duking it out. One, one week I'm happy and Ray's sad. The other week is I'm happy and Ray's happy. So. <laughs> but we like to bubble together, don't we, Dave? Yeah, we do. We bubble together. <laughs> well, well, that's that's what's matters. I'd like to ask that question. That uh, Ray does some incredible research prior to every guest interview, and he spends the time digging up all the dirt. But the uh, dirt. <laughs> you you coined a very interesting phrase uh, as a question, and that is, what is Brian's scary scariest moment in the ocean? I'm sure he's been asked. He already told us about the the reef sharks. Yeah, those two that I described, the the, the crocodile in uh, Mexico and the sharks in the South Pacific. But, you know, probably the the most frightening things that have happened to me were, were not because of wildlife. It was because of my own, you know, stupidity or, or user. How about how about heading into uh, on the Great Barrier Reef? I'm heading home and I look at my GPS and I'll get there after the sun sets. And you realize yeah. you cannot navigate a reef at night. And so I yeah. had to go sit on an island and spend the night. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I got lost at sea <clears throat> off the coast of Ireland. It was daytime, thank goodness. But I was doing a story on uh, ocean wildlife of Ireland. And this one day I was doing a dive off of County Kerry, a place called Puffin Island. Came up from the dive, my assistant and I, he was carrying one of my housings. I had a housing, dry suits on, cold water. But there was a very strong current and we were getting swept out to sea. Mm. The dive boat had the engines running so they didn't hear us yelling. There was mm. a big Atlantic swell oh, so wow. they couldn't see us. The sun was at our back and lo and behold, we ended up drifting for about two and a half hours uh, before we got picked up by a fishing boat. So that was dicey. Another time when I was doing a harp seal story in the in the icy waters of Canada, you know, diving through 25 foot thick pack ice. Uh, going through these breathing holes and leads, cracks in the wow. ice, and I, I, you know, the hole closed above Isn't my head. The cold? wind and tide. <laughs> it's yeah, it's very cold. Yeah. Hole closed above your head. Uh oh. Yeah, yeah. So I had to find another way out. Um, in another another wow. exit hole. So, wow. yeah. did, you so have, did you have a tank on? Yeah, yeah. I was scuba diving, but right. you know, still, only still, as long you only as, have as yeah. long as your pressure is. Um, exactly. And what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in all? I mean, even unexplained. What's the weirdest well, thing you've ever seen? That's a really good question. Uh, you know, that oarfish was no, certainly right up there. I was going to say right that oarfish had to be the one. I, I, yeah. I envy you that, man. Wow. It was a great day, yeah. I mean, on that roll of film, I had um, silky sh sharks, I had mahi-mahi, and an oarfish, and I almost had a blue marlin all, all on one dive. One yeah. on, on one roll of film. Wow. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. You know, I, I think that the, what they're doing when they're, fish, they're fishing like that as giant pencils in the water that, yeah, they're... Their fishing lines are basically that main and those yeah. fins that are going out, and whatever anything bumps into that, yes, they yes, and oh. they suction they suction feed whatever's there. 
So, so their pectoral fins are kind of like a... They're like monofilament. They're Monof- very thin. They're yeah. like fishing line. And yeah. I remember there was like little yellow ribbons on, on the end, oh. like a lure. Oh, they're lures. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think they're chemically clad. I think you're right, Ray. I think they're those pelvic rays, as they're called, oh. are actually, you know, treated with something biologically that... that works to help them fish yeah and exactly. they do uh they're related to uh, ribbon fish and uh yes. they're in that uh, or fish and then uh uh opas are actually in the same family of fish uh, I but I, I i'm uh, th- yeah that that's cool my fun. favorite fi- i always wanted to see one in the wild tell me what I an opa have. is you guys are uh, well, over the same, well yeah we're suddenly nerding fish nerding out but uh <laughs> opas uh are well Describe them. You're on the show. Uh, they're with us. a moonfish, right? Oh, they're, okay. they're called a moon uh, yeah. moonfish, and they're they're this kind of pinky orange with spots and and sort of uh, tall body. They're sort of uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say teardrop shape, but yeah, but somewhat like disc. that. Yeah, with yeah, red big fins disc. and polka dots. Yeah. yeah, beautiful fish. You have swum with the most dangerous sharks in the world. You know, great white sharks, and you did a whole mm-hmm. National Geographic series with great whites, yep. and you did tiger sharks, and you did oceanic white tips. You're one of the first guys to shoot yep. oceanic really? white tip underwater. And makos, yeah, we and did. the makos, and yep. uh, those times with the sharks, you're you were really more worried about maybe equipment failure than the exactly. shark eating you. Yeah, you know, I've probably done thousands of dives with sharks and only two or three times did I feel compelled to get out of the water. It was just a bad feeling and things were getting amped up and I didn't feel it was safe. But, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, uh, as divers, uh, David probably knows this, I mean, you know, you don't generally see sharks and and, and when you do, they're usually not interested That's right. Yeah. So you have to work hard to, to get them close, close enough for a good photo. Well, I did do the Port Lincoln Great White in oh, the Neptune yeah. Islands. Yeah, yeah. Shark Isn't that awesome? That, it's that wild. was quite amazing. Yeah. I yeah. talked to a guy once who uh, sitting in a bar in Monterey who told me the story of being attacked by a great white shark. And wow, uh, he was out uh, hunting for abalone near the, uh, the islands. Well, out it's there, the abalone but... divers oh, that are but... the most... Uh... But his first thought, he was out there, and he had—he actually had one of those little scooters that he was kind of putting along. Yeah. Up, and he went, and he was out there, and suddenly he sees the big tail go by, and he goes, yeah. and his first thought was, "Wow, I just got to see a white shark, and uh, <laughs> didn't have to pay to go see it." And he's scooting <laughs> along, and the next thing is, he looks down, and it's coming straight at him from underneath, uh, you oh know, mouth wide open. And then, of course, in the typical barroom story kind of style, he lifts up his arm and there's the tooth marks here up at oh. his upper arm oh. all the way down to his So leg. he got and mouth he got mouthed by it like he Rodney got Fox. mouth but it's because it was biting down on him and hit that little scooter thing that it let go. But you know, a lot Damn. of people say that, you know, great white is gonna they don't want to eat us, but you know, huh. they, they bite you and then let go. They've made a mistake. No, they're just bleeding you. Know bleeding what? Sorry, you. sorry. They're yeah. bleeding Excuse you. Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, they're <laughs> right. bleeding you. But sorry, say that to uh, all those Australians who have uh, uh, been completely eaten and, and witnessed. Yeah. Sure. Well, yeah. I have uh, shark attack statistics here, fellas. All right. Look at that. He's prepared. Let's, let's hear Great it. Great white sharks, 352 attacks, 52 have been fatal. When? That's it. No. One year? No, no, no. Nah, that's This is total. Total numbers. Wow. So many shark attacks are probably bull sharks, but are not uh, categorized as such. Would you agree, Mm. Brian? I I would. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of those attacks um, or bites happen in murky water. It's somebody surf casting or fishing. 
Yep, yep. So that could be. Uh, well, they're right up there uh, with maybe just almost as many as a tiger shark. But anyways, well, actually, one of my questions before I ask the big question. Yeah. Um, Uh-oh. I mean, the fun question. Well, well, the fun question. I asked the, the big question. question. All right. You, <laughs> Dave ends up with a big, thoughtful question at the end. He tries okay. to. He writes them down. Even, Dick, <laughs> you know, he'll read it off the script. But, you know, uh, years ago, there was an article there was a, about you. As a, uh, David says, we do a lot of sleuthing and research. But 10,000 hours underwater easily. Yeah. And that was years ago. You probably have maybe 15,000 hours underwater. I don't know. It's, it's nice of you to be <clears> yeah, with but, us but, above water today. But not today. in a row. But yeah, 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 I know. But yeah. but when you look at that, there's 8,760 hours in a year. You spent, you're, you're going to be 60 years old here soonish. You mm -hmm. spent uh, probably close to two years underwater, hmm. actually yeah. underwater, which is, that's a lot of your life, you know. But uh, you have been seeing the ocean. The ocean is the majority of this planet, right? You are uh, basically a messenger from the, the world below. Are, we are living on a water planet. Over 76% of the surface of the area of the world is covered with water. And you've seen the ocean change in your lifetime. And what are the biggest changes that, as a global citizen, the guy who speaks for the oceans, what have you seen that's different from when you started and where you're at now? There's my big heavy question. Well, I really, really appreciate that question, Ray. Um, you know, when I started diving as a teenager, I, I could have never imagined that I would have seen what I would describe as, you know, geologic change to the ocean in, in my own human lifetime. But, but that's exactly what I would describe. Um, in, in just the years that I've been diving, we have lost 90% uh, of the big fish in the ocean, you know, the tuna, the billfish, the sharks, because of commercial industrialized overfishing. We annually dump 18 billion pounds of, of plastic into the ocean. When I was diving back in the late 70s and 80s, I almost never remember seeing plastic in the ocean. And now it would be an anomaly if I made a dive where I didn't see plastic uh, on, on a dive. Um, we've lost half the world's coral reefs. Uh, the ocean, as you described, we live on an ocean planet. You know, when we first saw those pictures of Earth from space in the 1960s from NASA, and when we look at them today, we we instantly see a couple of things, that we live on this beautiful blue jewel floating out in the darkness of space, but we also can instantly see that it's very much a water planet. And although three quarters of the Earth's surface is ocean, 72%, 98% of Earth's biosphere, 98% right. of the livable, habitable planet where life can exist is ocean. Uh, every other breath that we take, of course, comes from the ocean. It is the greatest carbon sink we have. It takes in carbon and gives us back more than 50% of the oxygen. And yet we have dumped so much carbon into the atmosphere that the ocean's chemistry is changing. It is becoming acidic. And anything with calcium is eroding. Uh, I, I was talking to a, a lobster scientist the other day. I'm working on a new story about the Gulf of Maine. And he said that he believes that ocean acidification is affecting lobster's olfactory uh, ability. So the Gulf of Maine is warming 99% faster than the rest of the global ocean, and it's changing rapidly. And lobsters are predicted to move into Canada or to deeper ocean, but some other things are happening. The currents are affecting their larval production, and the recruitment is may not be what it, it, it has been historically, but the olfactory is changing as well. And he cited a case 
from a few years ago with salmon, back when in the Northeast we had what was known as acid rain. And it was factories that were dumping all this smoke and, and soot into the air. It was turning the rain acidic and fresh water was being affected. The pH level was rising and salmon that were moving up river were getting lost. They would get to a certain point and then they would get confused and nobody could figure out why it was happening. And they did some analysis of the water and they said, yeah, the pH levels are higher, but you know, that shouldn't be enough to, to screw up the salmon. But what they determined was that it was affecting the molecules of smell, that the way a molecule of scent fits into the, you know, olfactory bulbs. Or the whatever. receptor. Yeah, the receptor, that's right. So the scientist believes that the same thing is now happening with ocean acidification, that it's affecting olfactory. And that has to do with reproduction and it has to do with foraging and it has to do with so many other things. So, you know, all of these things, the ocean is, is dying a death of a thousand cuts. And we have taken so much from the ocean and we've dumped so many bad things into it that it's, it's you know, coming home to roost. And, and I think, you know, we're living at this pivotal moment in history where maybe for the first time we actually understand the problems and the solutions. And we just need that collective will to, to move towards protection and conservation. And uh, we have a small window of opportunity to, to get it right. You've got the National Geographic cover right behind you there, Saving the Seas Bounty. Yeah, it's you know? I mean, looking at this all interview, it shows a, a fishing net and a swordfish upside down, obviously dead in the net. Yeah. And it's blue yeah. and it's just sad. Mm. Yeah, it sure is. Saving the Seas Bounty. How many, actually, a real quick question. How many National Geographic covers do you have so far, Brian? Uh, well, I have five in the U.S., five U.S. covers, and I've had dozens internationally. Okay, all right. Just curious about that. Yep, yep. Since we are a paleo nerd show, you know, and you said you collected trilobites or you got a trilobite as a kid. It's very important yep. to you and you love dinosaurs when you were a kid. Mm. But if you could time travel back, if you could go back to an mm. epic, an epic epoch, a favorite paleo period, an awesome age, when would you want to go back wow. to and what would you want to see, man, if you could? Well, I would, I, you know, um, you can maybe help me with the epoch. Uh, the epoch, but I, I would love to that see. We all time. Epic epoch, I would love but... to see. Yeah, I would love to see a megalodon, um, and uh, I would love to see early whales that were just badass. Um, you know, blood sucking, big yeah, teeth. You know, predators. Uh, the leviathan sperm whale that was bigger than. That's megalodon. right, the leviathan. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. And, that's uh, right. Melvini, I think, is it actually? Yes, that's yeah, the one. Yeah. Like named after Melvin. And right? they, they could probably eat megalodon on a. You know, so. Just saying exactly so when when do you know when they well, would have Meg lived? megalodons uh probably died out about what five million years ago maybe mm, i think they we give them uh, about two million years ago in the pliocene but uh, i think also those uh the leviathan sperm whale be back of you know about five two to five million years ago so not that long ago yeah. then all right um i thought you were gonna say uh oh i want to go back to when the oceans were clean Oh, well, I oh. want to see some, some cool old animals, man. Yeah. All right. Here's my question. And Ray, you made fun of me because you say I read this. Of course, I'm going to read it. Just like you well, read I your know. thing. I, I did. I read the uh, one it's called, it's, called, it's called doing homework, dude. Well, I, you, he's going to write. All right. Read it, dude. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> every day, Brian, I anguish at the amount of plastic that is just on one trip to the grocery store. Now, I try to avoid it in my life. But, but when you buy anything from a hardware store or online... 
if it's not in a clear plastic display bubble, it's in a plastic bag, plastic, plastic, plastic. And, yeah. you know, humans have been aware of this problem for decades. And, and only recently has it become on the distant radar of, of the average consumer. But it hasn't gone away. It hasn't stopped. Plastics are still here and in mm. unimaginable amounts every day. I, I would go to the Great Barrier Reef, to the Cape Grenville, which is 500 miles from any any place. And the beaches, tropical beaches are littered with shoes and, and toothbrushes and yeah. flip-flops and barrels and fishing nets and floats. So the question I want to ask is, nothing, it hasn't stopped. It's still no. coming at me. Every day I go to the grocery store, it's still coming home in unimaginable amounts. What? How come? What? We know about mm. it. You know, what are we going to do? I, yeah. What are we going to do? No, <laughs> you, 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 your, your frustration is shared uh, by, by me. I, I say the exact same thing. And, you know, I scream it out loud in the kitchen. I swear, I, yeah, I swear well, at it. I, I do too. There is way too much plastic. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was doing a lecture, a speaking engagement in Porto, Portugal. And I, I met a, a woman. She was actually from Paris, but lived now in Kuala Lumpur. And she started a, a company, a business called, I think it was called Zero Waste. And they were shops. They were little shops in the city. And, and she started with one and then had two and then she had three. But what she was doing was buying things in big quantity you would go in as the as the consumer and you would say, you know, I want to buy some shampoo. So she would have this giant, you know, keg. And you bring your own uh, bottle. And you bring your own bottle, right. And, you know, you might go in on a Monday or Tuesday and say, these are the foods that I want for the week. And it would take her a day, but you would come back the next day and she would have a, a, a wooden basket, a, you know, wicker basket or something prepared with all the fruits and vegetables and foods. And, and meats you and give her your old basket. And you give her the old basket, you know, you know and, and I, I noticed that in, uh, I think it was in Europe also, that Haagen-Dazs ice cream was kind of going back to the old milkman model where they would have tins of ice cream and you would buy it at the grocery store. When you were done, you'd bring it back to the grocery store. They would take it back. They would sterilize it and reuse it. So there, there are ways. I mean, this woman said that in her household and with many of her customers, she had gotten to zero waste. She had eliminated plastic. And it just takes, you know, I think it takes a little bit of creativity on both ends. So the, the, the entrepreneurial people need to create opportunities and stores and ways that consumers have an outlet to go to, but there also has to be a desire. You know, I think here in America, we are just so used to just convenience, right? We buy something on Amazon or whatever, and it just comes in plastic and we might not like it, but, oh, we just throw it away in the trash. But, you know, I, I, I was talking to somebody not that long ago that said when they go to a Home Depot or a Best Buy and they buy something and it's in a ton of plastic, they they open it after they've bought it at the cash register, the checkout counter, and they give it back to the, the person there and say, look, I don't want all this trash. And it's not your fault. I'm not right, complaining right. to you. But, you know, you tell the manager who's going to tell sure. somebody else who's going to tell the manufacturer, you don't need to be doing this. There's a better way. And if everybody did that, if they all gave back their trash, you know, then maybe it would well, do you it. Know, but it's we funny have because to... chlorofluorocarbons were eradicated yeah. from the planet. So... Somehow that happened. Absolutely. So I, I don't get, I don't get, so, so someone is, there's collusion. Yes. There's collusion. I know. No, no, you're right. I, 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 um, 
not to name drop here, but when I was diving with President Obama a few years ago. That's right. You um, did. You did. You actually yeah. snorkeled with Obama. Yeah. 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 He invited me. He just created the world's largest marine protected area and then, uh, <laughs> up off of Midway. But we, he was talking about Excuse how. Me, I got to say so. I thought Bush did that as one of his last acts he, of office. He created it, but he only went out to 50 miles and Obama went to the 200 got, mile got it, got limit. It, got right. It. Because the science show that certain animals forage beyond that 50 yeah. miles and, you know, uh, monk seals or albatross or whatever it might be. Anyway, um, but he was talking about that very thing. He said with um, the hole in the ozone layer was because of fluorocarbons and um, that we solved that problem. And the acid rain thing that I talked about earlier here in New England, particularly, um, that was uh, fixed by, you know, getting factories to do a better job. So of existential threats are being resolved. But why don't they, yes. why does the world see this as one of the greatest existential threats ever? Well, there are, I don't, there are, I don't know. There are people, there are young people working. On, I know that the, I've actually know some young people that are working this very thing. Like, how can you organically like grow a substance that can be reused but no that's know, it's, like, it's not yeah. look, instead of to to replace for, plastic for, look at if you want you want fast food you go, there's places in portland where you bring your container and you just exchange mm. containers okay that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about how do you get the world the mindset to understand that slavery is wrong so we stop it yep, yep. yeah well we I, do I, I slowly know, but... get places to kind of you know we, we learn stuff slowly you know, yeah. so I'm, throw, I'm throwing this existential question out to the, all of the, our listeners. Well, we need answers. Yeah, I, we need answers. I, I mean, look, I, as I said earlier, David, you know, I think I think maybe for the first time in human history, we are at this moment, this pivotal moment where we do understand the problems and we do understand the solutions. But we just need that collective will. I mean, it, it, it really it's it's a pyramid or it's a it's a triangle. Right. You've got uh, you've got business, you know, industry, you've got government and you've got the consumer and and all three have to kind of work in in cooperation to to get there there has to be a will because from the people or else the politicians won't do anything and industry has to see profit in it and they have to know that customers are are you know rejecting what they're selling or you know it's like supply and demand so uh, those are very simplistic answers, but there are people who do have these answers and we just have to support them but the window of opportunity is closing. I mean, you know, we, we got to get this right soon or else it's going to be too late. Well, I got to say too, Brian, that, you know, people like yourself that do the work that you do, you risk your life uh, showing us this, the beauty of the world. Uh, we have stopped killing whales pretty much, yeah. you know, over yeah. the years, you know, for people like yourself. And well, from, Norway, uh, Japan, Russia. Yeah, yeah, I know, no, no, but, you know, like, but Bill <laughs> Kurtzinger, we slowly so we basically did save the, the whales. The whales are back to the point like where they're almost sort mm -hmm. of. There's some of the, uh, the, right the folks. Whale. Who, the right whale has only what 400 individuals, something like that. Yeah, well, they're read, still just read it's an a great article story, that they are not reproducing. They haven't this this season. There was no new calves this year. But here we are. We've the whale populations have recovered in a number of cases, but yet. Yeah the ocean is impoverished. So we've saved right. this. So it's a bigger thing that we got to right. do. But I got to say- Well, climate is the big yeah. one. And, you know, that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room and it's changing everything. And um, we're seeing it, right? I mean, we're seeing it right now as we speak in the West Coast and, and, and it, fires and droughts and oh, yeah, man. extreme oh, yeah. temperatures. And, you know, uh, this is stuff that they were predicting a decade from now.
Well, I want to end on a good note because uh, your photography has opened up the beauty of what most of the planet will not get to see, what we've seen underwater. And uh, really, I, I thank you. My hat's off to your, your lifetime of work. Well, thanks. And Brian, uh, people can go to your website. You've got a beautiful website. And actually, you know, so you get actually some of the prints right from you, too, as yep. well. It's very yep. cool. That's and right. Yeah. Your books are awesome. Social media. Yeah. Yep. Social you. media. Follow you on Instagram. And, and uh, we'll have all those links to uh, yeah. your page at paleonerds.com. So together, oh, man, cool. we are trying to make you. You are making the world a better place. And thank you for joining wow. us here on Paleo Nerds, man. Really appreciate well, it. Thank you very much. It's, it's a collective effort for sure. We all do what we can. And it's a real privilege. I hope we can do this again sometime soon. All right, man. Cool. Thank Thanks, you. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, huh? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're having fun on this show. Have you noticed that we're actually having fun? <laughs> yeah, I love the fact that... We've been uh, having fun all along, but they, they're yeah. been. I, I just love shooting the breeze with all our guests. I know. He just knows so much and has experienced so many things with, you know, whales and the ocean and... If you look at his body of work, he has been all over the planet, from the oh, Arctic everywhere, to the everywhere. tropics. Yeah. He's been, you know, what, two feet from a giant sperm whale. He's been with the belugas and, uh, and orcas. An orca gave him a present, Ray. Yeah, I know. I had a <laughs> raven give me a present, but it's not like an orca. You... Although... <laughs> Wait, a raven's a dinosaur, so hey, a dinosaur right. gave you a present. Right. You know, I could tell him about how I... Maybe I mentioned on another show when the oh, orca... Oh, by the way, and a dinosaur is talking to me right now. What? <laughs> oh, me. I see what you're doing. I'm a boomer. Yeah. I was going to say, once upon a time, I used uh, king salmon to catch an orca for just a moment. What? But it was a, by accident? It was, by accident. It was out there, Prince of Wales Island. I was fishing for king salmon. Had king salmon on, but it was a teaching moment. This was a cultural thing that happened with me. I was going to tell this story to Brian, but it's like he said so many adventures. But this big male orca came right at me, and this is when I was on a boat with Gary Staub. You know, we we're catching fish. This is we saw you a couple days after this. Right. The orca's coming at us, and I thought for sure the big male's going to get it, but no. And then along came two or three females, right by the boat, looking at me. But along came a juvenile, and they were just like, see this guy? See what's going on here? That's, there's yeah. his king salmon. Get yeah. it. Get and it. So yeah. the and so I literally saw it like for a second. Then the juvenile comes up. It's got my king salmon in his mouth. No way. He shows it to you before and, just to like. And it's left me on. I've really in the line. It's left me an eyeball and a lip on the hook. I'm not making that up. So wait a minute, Ray. You're telling me this, this. Juvenile orca came up and kind of just out of spite showed you that salmon in his well, mouth. Well, I, I could see it, man. It was like it was the wow. orca, the, the juvenile wow. that did it, man. So it really happened. I've got a picture of me and the eyeball and that, but it's right, right, uh, and the lip. But it's I have uh, many, uh, many a uh, trevally and coral trout, with, half of a coral trout with a beautiful yeah. curve yeah. of a shark bite. Yeah, I've caught half a you know ling cod before. Where the like what happened? Oh, the shark guy. And by the way, Brian doesn't look sixty. No, he doesn't. No, I think the ocean has kept him young looking. Yeah, You'll see yeah. that. But yeah, he's about to turn 60. And, um, you know, yeah. you and I are both sex sexagenarians. Sexagenarians. Yeah. That means you don't get sex or only with genarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no comment. But anyway, um, so that was what, brilliant. What a fun show. Uh, it's been great, as always, Ray. And uh, I really appreciate uh, our time together because we just talked to the greatest. You Well, you get all the guests. You do. Uh, you know, I got away. And I appreciate I that. I got through to I them, you know. I appreciate that. Get through. 
So we have, uh, yeah, lots of adventures left yet in our lives, Dave, and you're going to be up here soon. Hopefully we'll figure out yeah. some sort of adventure yeah. when you're up We're here. We're going to do a fun one. It's going to be fun. Signing off for beautiful, sunny, very warm, but just just oh so right. Catch a can by the sea, man. It's Raymond Troll saying, see you later, David. Where I'm are you saying at? saying goodbye from Ojai, California, soon to be in Ketchikan, Alaska. All right. See ya. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Really?